Turn in your Bibles to Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We sang a Christmas hymn a few minutes ago. Might seem a little strange to sing a Christmas hymn in February. But we should think of the themes of Christmas and Mary um, at other times besides just Christmas. And today is part two of a sermon I preached at Christmas time on Mary. Who was Mary, the mother of Jesus, part two? But first, let's stand together, recognizing the authority that the Word of God has over all things and over us. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And all God's people said, amen, please be seated. So, today is part two of our exploration of four, who exactly Mary was, the mother of Jesus. Just a brief review and recap from part one. These were my points. Number one, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have a bad reputation in the eyes of of very many people. Two, Mary was poor. Three, Mary's path of discipleship was difficult and required incredible faith. Four, much of Jesus' family did not believe. His own family, some of them at the end, did believe towards the end. Five, from last time, uh, we looked at the force of the Magnificat in uh, verses 46 through 55 that the Abrahamic covenant was and is fulfilled in Jesus. The great story of her people, our people, was summed up and completed in her son, Jesus. Now today, this sermon addresses many of the erroneous and problematic beliefs about Mary. That's where we need to go and turn our direction today. In, in many places. And again, I have five points that we will move through and address. The first is uh, common beliefs about Mary and a number of traditions. Second, who was Mary, biblically speaking? Three, Mary and the Nicene Creed. Four, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And five, the issue of Mary supposedly being a perpetual virgin. So, we're going to see that it is the word of God in this and all things that should form the content, passion, and priority of all our faith. Our practice and beliefs, including Mary. Whatever the Bible makes clear 
we believe. We obey. Whatever it teaches, we should stridently endeavor to understand. We defend it intelligently. The violence sometimes in the Bible. What it has to say about our sin. Hell. The role of women in marriage and in the church. What it has to say about sexuality. Slavery. Racism. Pride. We stridently endeavor to understand it carefully. We don't apologize for the word of God ever. Make excuses for it. We obey it. Joyfully with submissive hearts, knowing that God is trustworthy and good and all his written word is too. It is our life. So having laid that out, let's look at the first point. Beliefs about Mary. There is so much to say about the biblical material and the history of the church's reflections on Mary. We covered much of that in the first sermon. I'm just giving a survey providing key highlights with this. And let me say, too, this is not the right context for a detailed and nuanced response to the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox teachings on Mary. However, I do want to mention the basic approach towards worship with her and how Mary is regarded by these large traditions at a big scale. The Roman Catholic Church believes, and this applies to a lot of their teaching on images and worship, That worship and adoration belongs to God alone. The church does not teach that you should worship an image. It isn't that simple to refute. They are aids and reminders to help us actually worship God alone better and to pray better. Saints may be venerated or revered, the way we honor godly family members who have died in our family. And if we ask Christians to pray for us on earth, would we not ask the presumably conscious saints in heaven to pray for our faith and faithfulness too? There is continuity, you see, between saints, Christians on earth and saints up there, Christians up there. And because those Christians have died and are in the knowledge that comes from being in paradise, why would we not speak to them? Asking them to pray for us. These are the types of ways more knowledgeable Roman Catholics parse things. I'm not going to answer all the points that I brought up. These are good things for us to ponder, reflect, and talk about and discuss However, there are clear and apparent problems biblically with much of the greater church's views of Mary. And just because we were going to be talk about some things with the Roman Catholic Church in a few minutes and the Eastern Orthodox Church, it doesn't mean that some of the worst beliefs that happen to be held by certain portions of those large sectors of the church are believed by every member within those churches. We are very ecumenical here by God's grace and on purpose. God has showed us these things, right? We accept Roman Catholic baptisms. We, we have open communion. 
we regard as part of the church many different Christians coming from different places who love Jesus. We don't have closed communion here. We're not a sect, S-E-C-T, open communion, uh, working with our brothers and sisters on many different parts of the church on many things. Remember that. But the word of God is our standard, is it not? That is what we adhere to above all. The Hail Mary, let's think about it. I was reminded I was looking over a manuscript uh, Pastor Booth preached on many of these same things, I don't know, 18 years ago. <laughs> it's been some time. Um, and uh, saying much of the same things. But it is good for us, uh, seeing how significant a role that Mary has in many traditions for us to go back to these things again. So let's, I'll recite the Hail Mary. As I do it, I want to demonstrate what parts in the prayer are fine with what parts err. But mostly the problem with the Hail Mary is directing a prayer to Mary in the first place and not to God himself. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hold it. Hailing Mary instead of God and calling her full of grace. Problematic. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Good. Yes. Holy Mary. Problematic. Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. One major problem with this prayer, for all the affection that we should have towards Mary, and we should, in the Bible, from beginning to end, Prayer is directed straight to God alone in the scriptures, throughout. Straight to God alone. Isn't that better? We have access to the very throne of God himself in the name of one mediator, Jesus Christ, book of Hebrews, and by the intercession of the Spirit of God himself. What a privilege this is. This is a glorious and good thing. So not praying directly and boldly to God himself is the biggest problem with the Hail Mary. But also problematic is the phrase for her, full of grace. Only God is truly full of grace in the meaning of that term that is understood by many traditions by it. And Mary, according to some traditions, is simply exalted to a position of sinlessness, which is not biblical either. Some say Mary was a perpetual virgin. What is implied with this is that one is more holy if they are a virgin. More on this in a few minutes. Some say we are not saved unless Mary intercedes for us. Is this true? Is this true? Where does this idea come from? With all things in our lives, where do the ideas that we believe come from? Like we're talking about in Sunday school. Do they come from Scripture? Psychology, Freud, tradition, our families, where do the things that we believe come from? And that antithesis right there is the dividing line regarding church traditions. Where is our ultimate authority for all faith and practice, the Bible or church dogma or something else? Was Mary a perpetual virgin? 
Was she? Is she? The advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. The most important titles for Mary that one of the largest churches in the world believes. Is she the queen of heaven? The mother of God's creatures, co-mediatrix, intercessor? No. We should be aware of the influence also that the ideologies of men have on Christian doctrine. And we come back to touching on this like we did the first time. Both paganism of old and feminism in the past 75 years influence doctrine in the Christian church at large. The idea that we need some kind of female representative in God or amongst the gods is nothing but old school paganism. And many people do not share that. Many do that are influenced by more pagan ideas regarding the Godhead, male and female, and what that should look like in the Godhead. It's easy to see how feministic and anti-Christian the impulses of feminism in this are. Inhuman reasoning, distanced from God's word, some really do want to elevate Mary into a place that requires her mediation for our atonement. That Mary is the woman around here. The softer, more relatable side of God's condescension to us. By the time of the 12th century, the attitude for many was that Mary is... We need Mary. Mary is more lenient. You see? While God... God the Father is more of the strict and harsh, like, dad, to put it crudely. Necessary and important for the stability of the home. He balances out the negative liabilities of mom. But you have to have a judge. We need a divine defense attorney, and Mary is what you need. What's the problem with this? This is a gross mischaricature, of course, of God. The father is not a graceless, abusive, and distant dad. Mary is not our mediator. There is one mediator between God and men. The scriptures say, the man, Christ Jesus. I hope you can recognize that so much of feminism arises because of a warped view of men. And what's very terrible about that is not the ego of men, but that that missed caricature of God is, or that miss that caricature of men sometimes can be true, but is projected back onto God. To be specific, Mariology teaches that Mary has a formal role beyond bearing the promised seed that she atoned for our sin. Listen along with Christ, how? By her mediatorial role in prayer for us. That is specifically how they see her as a mediator. Not, they see Christ as the one who truly atoned by the cross, but through her intercessory prayer. Her will, many believe, was that was entirely harmonious with Jesus's and that she was sinless in that as well. The Roman Catholic Church also believes she ascended to heaven bodily. Did you know that? 
at the end of her calling on earth. And she still has a glorified body now, like Jesus in heaven. And the, the name of that doctrine is called the bodily assumption of Mary. Second point, who was Mary, biblically speaking? Who is this woman? How should we think about her? The one shown great favor by God. Mary, in historical theological terms, mostly Roman Catholic, is known as the Theotokos, also Eastern Orthodox, meaning the mother of God. In an important and qualified sense, she is. More precisely, she is the mother of the one who is God. More carefully stated. And even Mary would have to place her ultimate identity in being a member herself of the church, of the company of sinners who needed saving. A worshiper herself of Jesus of Nazareth as her savior, the God she knew so well. Mary was a sinner who needed saving. She herself rejoiced um, in her son and called him her, her savior. We see it in 46 and 47. Look at it. 47. My soul exalts. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. So we should get our beliefs about Mary, friends, from the scriptures. In overreaction to the abuses of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox denominations, Protestants, I'm concerned, don't think much of her. I think it's an overreaction. If we do think of her, But Mary is an important presence in various places in the Gospels. She did say, after all, in our text, 48b, For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And we do. She is the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before Christmas, think on it. There is only one human being ever that can say, Jesus is my son. Think about that. It's an amazing thing. It's staggering. She is to be honored and remembered, but mostly because she was humble. And she totally trusted God. I think knowing the implications of what others would say about her. And that many would not believe her story and Joseph's. She trusted in the God who does things sometimes so radically different than what we expect. But you see, Mary was so caught up in what God was doing for his people. That's what what Mary was caught up with. That's what her song is all about here at the Magnificat. The fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Mary was not so focused with how important she was to be the bearer of the Messiah. And that's what made Mary truly great. Mary was a faithful type for the church, yes, 
but so is Joseph, her husband. I have a, f- a friend of mine from years ago. He was an Eastern Orthodox priest, Father Leo. And he, he loved what we were doing in Northern California with our classical school, and he wanted to help. And he came in, and he did art classes with the kids, and he gave to my wife and I to the school. Jana put it in the kindergarten classroom. But just a, a beautiful painting of Joseph and Mary and Jesus as a baby. But the thing that was so unique about this painting is that it's not just Mary and Jesus, which is so often what you see in many very high liturgical church traditions. But Joseph was overshadowing Mary. Joseph and then sort of the protection of Mary and then Jesus um, at the center. And I, th- I think that painting is rich. I think it's great. I think Joseph is neglected in that sense. But even still, when visiting an Eastern Orthodox church, as I have, front and center, behind the iconostasis, because they separate the sanctuary into the holy place and to the less holy place, behind the iconostasis was a large encompassing painting of Mary, front and center of, of the end of the sanctuary. And they prayed and they sang repeatedly words such as, Remembering our most holy, pure, blessed, and glorious lady, the Theotokos, and ever-Virgin Mary. Man, in his fleshly wisdom, is always apt to miss the point. God gives his only begotten son to be the savior of the world. He preserves his gospel down through the generations and his message of good news is crystal clear. What do huge portions of Christians do? They easily miss the main point. And in this case, can elevate Mary as part of the package of what we truly need. To be made right with God. Sinful man adds to the gospel and distracts us and clutters up the clear life-saving centrality of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Even sometimes, hey, judgment begins with us, right? We have to focus on ourselves. Even sometimes in the Reformed Presbyterian world, we can take certain doctrinal formulations or expressions of a doctrine and say that unless you ascribe to the exact way that this catechism describes X, you're probably not a Christian. Or that you have to be a Calvinist to be a Christian. In some cases, this can ironically be another way of adding man's works to the gospel. Are we saved by perfect doctrinal expression or are we saved by genuine faith in Jesus himself? There is a difference. But look, Mary's life as all the rest of the Bible and sound doctrine, points squarely to the fact that Jesus Christ and no mere man or woman is at the center of true Christianity. Point three, Mary in the Nicene Creed. Grab, grab a contus. Go ahead. Grab, grab your copy of the contus. I think this is important. I want to point something out to you. Most of the congregation, most of you have this memorized. 
But there's actually grammatical reasons why this version of the Nicene Creed is exactly the way it is. So we all have new versions of the Nicene Creed that um, Mrs. Ramsey put in. Some of them are a little bit of the old version, but take a look at this. Did you know that there is a reason why grammatically there is a comma after the word virgin? Go ahead and look at it in the Nicene Creed. Why? It's because of this. Mary does not and should not have a title. That's why there needs to be a comma, and there is, after virgin, and virgin is not capitalized. It's not her title, as it is in many traditions. Capital V, capital M, no comma. Virgin Mary. As though she is a perpetual virgin, and that it's more holy to be a virgin. No. Some might say, you Protestants, your problem is that you don't honor Mary, the very mother of the Son of God. No. We desire to truly honor Mary, the mother of the king, by making a big deal about the God-man that her whole life pointed to. That's how we honor Mary. Mary's own emphasis when she was illuminated by the Spirit was completely on Jesus. Fourth point, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is wrong. And so, no, Mary was not free from original sin. This is called the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And, just so you're clear, this is to be distinguished from the miraculous conception of Christ. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is that Mary herself was conceived free from original sin. The argument goes that you can't have a deeply sinful woman who bears the perfect Son of God. To his credit, Thomas Aquinas opposed this view, but Pope Pius IX declared it official dogma in the 19th century. As late as 1854. Mary was fallen in her covenant head, Adam, just as everyone else is. She needed a savior, and she rejoiced that she had one in God. Section 5. 5. Mary the Perpetual Virgin. Was Mary a perpetual virgin after Jesus was born? It, maybe it seems crazy to you to believe in that, but there are huge portions of Christians around the world who believe this. Mary was not defiled by normal marriage relations as though she needed to be preserved from such base things, being Jesus' mother. That's an erroneous view of Mary, And it's an erroneous view of the marriage bed. Matthew says Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. 125. Furthermore, Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth with the people saying this. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And by the way, Mark 6 is a very important in getting Jesus' own family down right. The Roman Catholic Church tries to squeeze out the plain meaning of these type texts by saying that the words Adelphos and Adelphe, which you know because of our Adelphe group, means brothers and sisters, but can refer to cousins, you see, or the way we speak about fellow Christians, like Brother Jack, Sister Susie. But the multiple texts describing Jesus' siblings do so with specific language denoting blood relation. Scripturally, we know that Joseph legally adopted Jesus, of course, and he named him what the angel commanded him, Yeshua, which was, of course, an alternate form and very closely linked with Joshua. Yahweh is salvation. He was the firstborn. Mary then had Yaakov, Jacob. Or what we say in English, James, means the same thing. She had Joseph, or Joseph is what it says in Mark. She had Yehuda, Judah, and Shimeon, or Simon. Five boys, all of whom had names that described key periods of Jewish history, which is interesting. So Jesus had four brothers. Jesus knew what it was like to have four brothers. Just let that sink in. Jesus had sisters, at least two. He knew what that was like, too. Seven children, a family of at least nine. In Luke 11, as Jesus was teaching, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, In the hearing of all, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. How did Jesus respond? He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So in conclusion, the word of God primarily and not the traditions of men, should form the very content and passion of all our faith, practice, and beliefs, including Mary. We remember and honor Mary as an extraordinary woman of faith and faithfulness. She was a sinner. She needed a savior. She is a wonderful depiction of the church, but she is not the mother of the church. Mary says, she would say, honor me by looking to God, to what my Savior has done in history, at what my God and your God has completed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust in your word. We thank you for this amazing woman We thank you that your word leads us to truth. And Father, we want to be so gracious with those who are in error on these things. But yet, Father, we do not apologize for the clarity and truth of your word. And in your truth, we speak to the world and to each other in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 12, 
verse 31. It says, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And in verse 37 of this passage, Jesus said this, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. It is our practice, it's our habit and our joy to be on the alert, ready for his coming, ready for our death, and ready for the consummation of all things by resting at this table and partaking of his grace. And saints, to remind you, just as verse 37 that I just read, to remind you, every Sunday... When these men serve you, it is the Lord Jesus who is serving you, having communion with you personally. Father, all thanks be to you now that we have this grace, that we might not be unmindful, but rather carry this grace about engraven on our hearts this day and this week to advance and grow in that faith which is effective for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.